So we are in John 7. And remember, we're, I know you guys know all this because we've been doing it for weeks now. But we're at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Okay? So at the, at the Festival of Tabernacles or the booths. And this is a week-long celebration um, to celebrate the 40-year wandering in the, in the wilderness of Israel. So before they got the Promised Land. And Jesus is at this feast in Jerusalem. It's one of the three feasts where you have to go to Jerusalem as a Jewish male. Um, so he's there. And now we're going to we're going to read what he does on the last day of the feast. And this day, well, the whole feast is really oriented around there's water ceremonies and light ceremonies. Okay? And in John 7, Jesus is going to talk about being water. And in John 8, he's going to talk about being light. So that's kind of what we're oriented around right now. Okay? Any questions so far? There's the Gordons. There's Michelle. Okay. Um, so let's read John 8, verses 37 through 39. Someone read that out loud. Kevin, can you hear us? Yes. You can? <laughs> All right, for the reading. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. As, for as yet the Spirit has not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, thank you. I know we read this last week. Um, it's a very familiar passage to a lot of people, um, but it's, it's a very interesting passage. It's, it's actually very hard to translate from Greek, um, but this is kind of the best translation we can do at this moment. So, number one, who does Jesus claim to be? Would it be living water or God? Good. He claims to be the source of water. Okay? So if you need water, you can come to Jesus and get it. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. So Isaiah is a big old book in the middle of the Old Testament. We go there a lot when reading John because John and Isaiah seem to be kind of on the same page, ironically. Um, so John likes to allude to Isaiah a lot as well as quote him. So Isaiah 55 verse 1. Well, we should really read 1 and 2. You know, I just keep going. That's the thing. Uh, actually, let's read one through three. We'll do one through three. Since it's Palm Sunday. Isaiah 55, one to three. Does someone read that? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? 
and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Okay, so in Isaiah 55, 1 to 3, who's speaking? Who has steadfast love and makes covenants with David? Who is that? In Isaiah 55, who is that? Yahweh. That's Yahweh. Good. So in Isaiah, Yahweh is the one who says these things. Okay? Clearly it's Yahweh. He's the one that has steadfast love. He's the one that's making these promises to David. And so he's the one who says, when you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Well, now Jesus stands up in John 7 and says the same thing. He says, whoever's thirsty, come to me, right, and drink. So what we have is, once again, we have Jesus kind of doing the stuff that only Yahweh does. And this is one of our themes throughout the Gospel of John, is that Jesus continues to do the things that Yahweh is supposed to be doing. So now he's going to stand up at the feast and say, come to me if you're thirsty, right? And then whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow the living water, okay? So this is really Jesus putting himself in the place of the God who saves his people. And this is the big theme in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is our, and I guess this isn't a big shock for all you guys, but Jesus is our Savior. So here he's standing up and he's saying, come to me for water, which is the same thing Yahweh said in the Old Testament. And this is obviously, as we know, going to get him in trouble. And he's going to say it even more as we go in John chapter 8. So don't forget that John 7 and 8 really are kind of more connected than we think they are. But, but this is the idea, is that Jesus is standing up and saying all these promises of the Old Testament, all of this stuff that Yahweh does for, for Israel in the Old Testament, I have come to do for you now. Okay, I have come to do these saving acts, to, to fulfill these promises on your behalf. Okay? Questions on that or thoughts? <laughs> what questions do you have for me? Kevin, there are times when it says that the Spirit hasn't come, and we say that the Spirit is why we can believe in Jesus as Christ. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about how he's not there, but he's there, the Spirit? Yes. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's actually number three, but that's okay. So, so yeah, this this weird thing about the Spirit not coming. Um, we're going to get there. Let's actually get there as we get to number three. But, yeah, hold your question That's because that's a very good question. And it's a weird phrase. It's kind of one of those weird things that people are kind of interested about, like, why would it say that? Now, again, if you want to know, I should have said this earlier, if you want to know the, the citation that is probably being alluded to with the 
out of his water will out of his heart will flow living water or whatever. Look at Isaiah twelve, and I think it's first. Is it verse three? First Isaiah twelve three, where it says, "With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted." So this is the best allusion we have really for this scripture reference in John seven. But I, I wanted to mention that because it does complete this picture of Jesus kind of standing in the place of Yahweh. And it does actually get, Michelle, to your question about the outpouring of the Spirit. Okay? And, and we'll get, that's what we're going to transition to next. What, any other questions on the first part about Jesus claiming to be Yahweh or anything like that? Okay, number two, what is your source of life? Here we go. Here it is. I don't like it on the computer. We can get it here. Hi, Colette. Hi, how are you? Good. We're having a hard time getting you on the big computer. We're on the little phone. <laughs> <laughs> very small. At least we okay. got you. That's good. All right, number two. So what is your source of life? Jesus. Yeah, that's the easy answer, right? I don't leave that much space the answer is Jesus. I don't leave that much space the answer is Jesus. Yeah, good, Jesus. Excellent. Uh, what else? In the way this passage is talking, how would we how would you think about this passage for us? The scriptures. Okay, good. The scriptures. What else? Communion. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit. This is really, remember, for us, we also have water that flows and is our source of life. So this is really then when John, once again, chapter 3, he's tying together Spirit and water. Okay? So when we talk about baptism, and you remember John 3. That was weird. That was a metathesis. It happened in real life. When you think about John 3, and he said you can't enter the, the kingdom of God without water and the spirit, and we talked at that point about being born Remember, Jesus said, be born from above or born again. But this idea of birth is tied to this baptism, this water and spirit idea. So once again, we have this source of life. Remember, water is a source of life. You can't live without water. So the source of life is spirit and water. And for us, then, this is given to us in the sacrament of holy baptism. So that we who are baptized into Christ, we have been given the very life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in this baptism, and that's how we live, okay? So this is really then this baptismal identity um, where because we've been baptized into Christ, we have this life in us. And it's not just life now, but this, this life, right, goes on to eternal life. And... And what that means is because this 
promise has been made and kept for you on the cross, delivered to you in baptism. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been washed in this. You have eternal life. That means nothing can really defeat that. We, we can't be defeated by anything that comes our way, including a virus, including changes in our life. It's that this is the promise that we live in as Christians, this, this kept promise on the cross, delivered to us in baptism. We are washed. We have the Holy Spirit. And this is why at the beginning of every worship service, when we begin the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are invited to make the sign of the cross to remember your baptism. Okay, you're, you're, you're recalling your baptism. You're recalling what God has done in Christ and given to your baptism. And this is then the way that we live our lives. We live our lives as baptized children. We confess our sins, which is the, the dying part of baptism, right? To be crucifying the old self. But then we, we, we are raised up in Christ to the forgiveness of our sins, and that's the resurrection part that we have. So we live in this, this constant reality of baptism where we're, our sins are killed, but, but in forgiveness we're given new life. Okay? That's... Questions? Kevin, sometimes it's, uh, for me, it's instructive to look at, or helpful, look at the other side of the coin. And, and I, the word cistern was sticking in my mind. I, I searched for it. And in, in Jeremiah 2.13, it says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so what happens is, when we, when we def define our lives by things that aren't God's promises, okay? So we have God's promises, and we reject those. Now, we're, now we have not baptismal waters, but we have cisterns that don't hold, right? Bye. Thank you. then we have if we're not trusting in the water that god gives but we're trusting in our own cisterns like jeremiah is talking to now we're we're in broke we're not in cisterns that hold water in the promises of god now we're, we're trusting in different waters which is not from god and that is not going to work out well right does that make sense and so remember jeremiah's whole prophecy is that they have all the things of yahweh but they're not no longer trusting in them and that's why they're going to go into exile. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Any other questions? Hi, Bobby. That's not me. All right, number three. What does John mean the spirit had not yet been given? And then this, this is Michelle's question. Sorry, Michelle is up there on my screen. So, um, what does John mean the Spirit had not yet been given? Any guesses? Any thoughts? Is this because in the Old Testament we would have angels and God actually come down to talk to people, and today we have the Spirit coming to us? Okay, good. There's, there is something about Old Testament and New Testament. Very good. Any other ideas? Well, Pentecost hasn't happened yet, so we... Right, not so Pentecost... 
remember, Pentecost is when the Spirit is given to the church, okay? My generally. So that after Pentecost, every believer has the Holy Spirit through their baptism, and that's what, you know, this is this is how we have our faith, it's the Holy Spirit, right? But what else is going on? There, there's something else going on than just not, it's not just temporal, but it's actually something that's that's already been talked about in the Gospel of John and in the other Gospels. Um, but this is this is kind of part of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is this if you go, part, go ahead. Is this the part when Jesus dies and he gives up his spirit? Good. I'm trying to so, leave that. So on the cross, we have Jesus giving up his spirit, which can be simply no longer breathing, but it could also be interpreted that he's He's exhaling the Holy Spirit, okay? And we'll kind of see how that works. So very good. What else? Okay, go quickly to okay, John. I have, a, I have a thought. Yes, go ahead. Um, in the Creed, it proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son together towards and glorified. Mm -hmm. Well... Jesus had not been glorified yet. Good. So I would think he would have to go be go to the cross. Yes. Rise from the dead, and then the act is completed. Exactly. Good. So this is what's happening is because Jesus has not yet been glorified, the spirit has not yet been given. That's exactly right. Very good. And the creeds do record this. Excellent. So let's go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 32. Actually, 32 through 34. Remember, when you're reading the Gospel of John, if something happens or Jesus says something's going to happen or has happened, you can almost always find it somewhere else in the gospel itself. It's that's that's why John is the best book, right? Because it gives us the whole thing in one unit. Um, but but in the gospel of John, whenever Jesus says something, you can almost always go find it somewhere else in the gospel. It's just that's the way he wrote. He wrote in circles so that we can always kind of figure that out. Okay, so let's look at John one verses thirty two through thirty four, and this is John the Baptist speaking. So, want to read that for us? Um, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness to this, the Son of God. Okay, so in John 1, it's saying the Holy Spirit came and rested on Jesus and remained on him. Now, this is important because in Isaiah, and this is your reading for this morning, if you if you either stream church or do church, whatever, um, at home, one of our readings is Isaiah chapter 50, which, which refers to, in Isaiah, there's this guy called the servant, okay? And the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 40 to 55 
He's the one who saves Israel. Okay, so he saves Israel. And he does that by dying for them. He does it by dying for Israel. But one of the things about the servant in Isaiah is that the spirit of Yahweh will be upon him. Okay? The, the spirit of Yahweh will be upon the servant of Yahweh, and this servant upon whom the spirit rests will save God's people Israel from their sins. And this is exactly what's happening now in John with Jesus. He's saying that the spirit, John says, the spirit of Yahweh is upon Jesus, who is now going to go save Israel by fulfilling the role of the servant of Yahweh by literally dying in order to save Israel. Okay? So what's going to happen is Jesus, and this is going to sound a little strange, but it's okay. Jesus has the Holy Spirit. Okay? He's got him. He's on Jesus. And during his earthly ministry, he's walking around as the servant of Yahweh with the Holy Spirit on him, in him. Okay? With him. And what's going to happen is after his death and resurrection, he's going to give that spirit that he's had this whole time, he's going to give it to the church. Okay? And you guys know this from John chapter 20. If you go to John 20, we've read this a couple times already. John 20, I think it's verse 22. Is that right? Verse 22? Yeah. So John 20, 22, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He greets his disciples in the upper room. Okay, so this is the day of the resurrection. I'm getting lighting, lighting help for my daughters, apparently. Is that better? Can you guys see better? Less better? Yes, the shine is off. The shine is off, good. That's why I have assistance, you know, like, they clean my messes for me. So John, I can't read my Bible though now. It's too dark. <laughs> I'm old. Okay, so John 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on his, holy, on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness of sins, then it is withheld. So now we have Jesus giving the Holy Spirit to his apostles, right, and to the church then, and the result of the Holy Spirit is the forgiveness of sins, which was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Okay, so now in the Gospel of John, we have the Spirit coming on Jesus at his baptism, and then to the church through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, and this is exactly what he promises, is he says that in, in John 14, 15, and 16, he says, when I depart, when I die and rise, I will give to you the Holy Spirit as another counselor, as another aid or comforter or paraclete, right? And he will lead you into all truth. So the Spirit will come upon us through our baptism and he will lead us into all truth. He will show us the truth of who Jesus is and what God has done for us. Okay? So if any of the stuff that I'm saying makes any sense to you, 
it's, we're going to, I'm not doing a blaspheme too much here, but that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? If any of the stuff that we're saying you believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And we are in a unique position because the, the people in the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do now because they were prior to the death and resurrection of Christ. They had the Spirit as one who was pointing ahead to what Christ was going to do. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us because of what Christ has done. We have the Spirit that dwells in us and gives us faith in what Christ has done for us. Okay? Does that make sense? Any questions on that or thoughts? Michelle? Um, we were reading in Acts. Uh, I was reading in Acts. And um, in Acts 8, yep. 14... Uh, to 17, it talks about they accepted the word of God, but yet they hadn't received the spirit. How can they accept the word without having the spirit? Okay, so what happens in the book of Acts is the apostles are going around and preaching, and they're encountering people who have heard the word from non-apostolic sources. Okay? So a lot of people are preaching the gospel of Jesus, but not through the apostolic preaching. So it seems like Paul and other apostles encounter people who have heard the word, but have not received the apostolic baptism yet. Okay? And there's this weird period in the book of Acts where they're hearing the word basically based on John the Baptist's teachings, and then that was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but they're not getting the full apostolic teaching, okay? So they're kind of, and this is going to sound strange, but just go with it. They're kind of Old Testament believers at this point. They're in this transition period where they're believing that the word is, is, is fulfilled in Christ, so they believe, but they haven't yet heard the apostolic teaching which includes baptism in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They haven't heard that yet. So what happens is, is then Paul and the apostles go, they lay their hands on them, they baptize them in this name, and then they, they receive the full apostolic teaching, which includes the gift of the Holy Spirit. But... It, it kind of seems like the book of Acts that there are these people that are kind of believing the word. Obviously, that's the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. But they haven't received this apostolic teaching yet of the New Testament, which involves baptism and the full giving of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, like I said, think of about like you do the Old Testament. How did they believe in the Old Testament? Because they see forward. Right. And what was the power to believe in the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit. I was still the Holy Spirit, right? Just because it's given differently doesn't mean that it wasn't around or active. Right. Okay? So it's just, it's just a change. And, and one of the things that we do want to make sure we say is that, well, let's just ask some questions. Is the Old Testament still true? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it? Absolutely. 
Or did God change his mind? Like, eh. <laughs> it's true. It's true, but things are different now. Right? True. It's true, but things are different now. And the difference now is that God has come in Christ and accomplished the salvation of the world. That actually had not historically happened yet when the Old Testament was written. So it's still true, but this changes everything. Okay? And guess what? There's another event coming where we're going to look back and say, yeah, that was all true, but it's all different now. And what's that going to be? Second coming. The second coming. See, it's not, the second coming is not going to negate the word of God. It's going to fulfill it. And so what's going to happen is we're going to look back and say, the New Testament, yeah, that was all true. The Old Testament, yeah, that was all true. But things are different now. Right? You will worship God, but you will not start with confession and absolution because you will not sin. sin. Does that make sense? So we're not going to say, well, all that confession and absolution stuff was, was wrong and stupid. No, we're going to say that was true. But something has, God has acted in such a way to change everything. Okay, so that's kind of what we say of the Old Testament, is that it was true, but things were just a little different, because God had not done this yet. He had not come in his son, Jesus, to accomplish the salvation of the world. So it was all looking ahead to that, whereas obviously now we look back. Okay. So the Holy Spirit is given now fully to the church through the death and resurrection of Christ, through the promises of Pentecost, given to the apostles, given to the world. Okay. I have a question. Number four. Just a, yeah. Could I have a question real quick? Um, just to clarify, in the upper room when Jesus breathed on the disciples and gave them the Holy Spirit, that did the tongues of fire come then or was Pentecost like 50 days later? And is that when it happened? And is that when the whole church got the Holy Spirit at Actually, 50 days later at Pentecost? Yeah, exactly. So you kind of have this little this little Pentecost of the Apostles in John 20, where he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then Pentecost is seven weeks later. Okay, that's the seven weeks after the Pentecost, after the Passover. So so remember between between the resurrection, between Easter you guys know this. Maybe this year will be a little weirder for us. But between Easter and the Ascension is 40 days. That's why Ascension is always on a Thursday. Okay? It's 40 days. And then Pentecost follows the Ascension. It's basically another 10 days. But for us, it's kind of nine days because we do days there a little differently, okay? So then you have, and this is the way the church calendar always works, right? You have Ascension, then you have another Sunday, and then you have, a, then you have Pentecost Sunday, okay? So it's, Pentecost is actually seven weeks after the, the Passover. Okay, 50 days. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. Okay, number four. So when will Jesus be glorified? In, in the Gospel of John, when is Jesus glorified? It's not hard. 
on the cross. Good. So in the Gospel of John, specifically, the glorification of Jesus is his lifting up of Jesus on the cross. Okay? So the exaltation of Jesus is the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. More than any other gospel, this is emphasized that this is the glory of God displayed for the world to see. The glory of Jesus, the glory of God, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Specifically then, you're going to look at him on the cross and see God. And remember, this is, this is Luther, one of Luther's main ideas, is that we, we believe in a theology in which God is the most clearly God when he looks the least like God. Okay? And this is really weird, but actually this is very important for us right now. God is most assuredly present when he looks like he is absent. I know that sounds strange and it feels weird, but it's true. God is most assuredly present when in our perception, it looks like he's the most absent. Okay? So what that means is, is that we don't say, where has God gone? No, we say during this time of suffering, during this time of repentance, during this time of, of turmoil, when we're trying to figure out our lives, this is the time not to say to God, where'd you go? But no, this is the time to run to the cross and say, my God is a God who knows suffering. My God is a God who knows isolation. My God is a God who knows what it's like to not know what's going on in this world, to literally cry out in agony to God and say, take this cup from me. To cry out to God and say, I'm suffering and I don't like it. We actually run to the cross and say, our God is with us. We don't have a God. Now just think about this. Some religions have a God that is porcelain. Perfect. Up there, everything's always rosy. Everything's wonderful. And if things aren't wonderful, that means God is not with you. That's actually a lot of people's God. But our God is the opposite. Our God says, I am with you in your suffering. When things are falling apart, God is with you. I promise. That's, that's what the death and resurrection promises to us. Question. Yeah. Sorry, oh. I'm just going to I didn't have a question. I just really enjoyed what you just said because it's so true. It's a time that we get quiet before him and we can hear his voice. Mm -hmm. In these great times that our faith is being tested, this is when we excel as Christians. Exactly. Then we become more like him. Our character will come out and our hope is more in him. So excellent point. I just wanted to say that I really love that, that you brought that into this. Yeah, God is good. And, and this is really um, – well, this, we get to do this, which um, most of us get together on Sunday morning, and that's awesome, but also other people join us who don't usually join us. So even, even the church in these ways are joining together in new and different ways. Um, there's a lot to talk about with that as well. But, but there are some things that God is doing right now through all this where we are um, kind of gathering together around his word in ways that, are, that is just really, really hopefully something that, that teaches us moving forward where our hope truly is, okay? And, and, and it's really true that, that 
Our hope is here, nowhere else. Okay, let's uh, let's read. Did you have any questions on that section? That was. Okay, let's go on to John 7, verses 42 through 52. I'm going to read this because it's a long section. So I'm going to read it because it gets a little fuzzy online. So, yep, sorry, you have to listen to me. I will try to see it, even in the darkness. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Okay? This is fun. So what do people... What do the people who heard Jesus think? What do they think? They think he's the prophet. Yeah. He talks like a prophet. Why does why do they think he talks like a prophet? Why would they say that? What's Jesus doing to make them think he sounds like a prophet? Well, he's he's literally quoting prophets. So he sounds a lot like Isaiah. A lot. He sounds a lot like Ezekiel. He sounds a lot like Hosea. Okay, so he's actually saying words that Old Testament prophets said. He's actually sounding quite prophetic. He is standing up at a Jewish feast and teaching truths of Yahweh, like the prophets. Okay, so they hear his words and they think, oh, good. This guy is speaking God's word. They think that what he's saying sounds a lot like God's word. It sounds good. It sounds like something Yahweh would say. Okay, so, so much so that they also think he might be the Christ. Which, remember, is the same in, in Hebrew, that's the word Messiah. It's the exact same word. Okay, so this is just the Greek form of this word. So they're wondering, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's this promised Savior that's come to the whole world that is going to redeem Israel, going to deliver God's people, maybe. Okay? Any questions or thoughts on that? Okay, how is verse 42 ironic? 
he's sounding like scripture, but they don't understand the They don't know that part of scripture. Yeah. They don't recognize but, that part of scripture. What is, what is John? Yeah, you're right. He's sounding scripture, but they don't understand that part of scripture, which is from Micah 5 too, really. Which is Jesus. Jesus that, came from Bethlehem. Yeah, Jesus actually is from Bethlehem. I mean, this is just dripping with irony, which doesn't stop. The irony continues through this passage. But John is saying that these people are like, well, he can't be the Messiah because he's not from Bethlehem. And we're all going, uh, but he was, what? Right? I mean, this is just ironic. So John's readers, and a lot of commentators even say, this is hilarious. That, you know, the, the readers of the New Testament would know this is just silly. They're saying, well, if he was the Messiah, he'd be from Bethlehem. And we're all saying, he is from Bethlehem. Right? Like they haven't heard Peanuts Christmas special or something. Even Linus knows this. Okay, so this is part of the thing as you read the New Testament, they actually do use humor. There are places in the New Testament that are actually written to be funny. I know that might be offensive, but it's true. And this is one of them where you know more than the characters in the story. The characters in the story are like, he's supposed to be from Bethlehem. And we're all going, he is from Bethlehem. And then later the Pharisees are going to say, no, not one of the Pharisees believe in him. And yet, the next character we hear from is Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, who believes in Jesus. Okay, so in this passage, we have two instances of Johannine irony, of John writing, kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, as he's writing it, saying, you guys know more than the Pharisees. You guys know more than Jewish officials. You guys know more than these crowds knew, because you know who Christ, who Jesus truly is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? And yes, some of the Pharisees did believe this, those who talked to him. Does that make sense? Kevin, do you think um, we can assume that in Matthew 2, that when Herod inquired of the wise men where Jesus was going to be born, that he didn't tell them the, the, why he was asking? I wonder. Um, I think you could assume that he, hmm, why he was asking. Yeah, I mean, he hid from them his plan that he wanted to know where Jesus was so he could kill him. Yeah. As he said, that I too may go worship him, right? Yeah. yeah after he asked the, the scribes and Pharisees, it said he summoned the wise men secretly. So I almost get the impression that he asked Oops, I muted myself. Where Jesus was going to be born, and then he then he went to the wise men and said, "Hey, go find him and tell me." But he didn't let everybody else know why he asked. Maybe I don't know. Right? Yeah, I think I think he's he's kind of. This is where you see Herod's treachery and his his um, deceitful personality is that he's he's kind of hatching a scheme here. He's he's finding out from the scribes where he's going to be born, so he can go literally get rid of him. Yeah. But then he's also um, they also. At the same time, he's kind of playing a game with the, the wise men saying, oh, I don't go worship him. It's all on your side. So he's, yeah, there you see the deceitfulness of Herod. Okay, and, Scott and really, says, but they say he's from Galilee. Is that their hangup that he was not living in Bethlehem? Yeah, so that's the point. Is they're not, they're saying he's not living in Bethlehem, but he's living in Galilee. Therefore, he's not from Bethlehem. 
He's from Galilee, which is weird. Um, they know enough about him to know where he lives, but they don't know enough about him to know where he was born. So, so again, this is kind of the this is kind of the ir irony in this in all of John is even in the beginning in John chapter one. Can any prophet come from Galilee? Can anything good come from Galilee? And and yet Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Most of his ministry occurs in the Gospel of John in Jerusalem, and yet he's from Galilee. So people have this, remember last week we talked about this, our perceptions of what God is supposed to do doesn't always line up with what he actually does, and then we're kind of stuck trying to figure out, are, is God's truth more important, or is the way that I think God should have done it more important? Hi, Daniels. Okay. Number seven. So how does Nicodemus tie together spirit and water in Jesus? At the end of John chapter seven, all of a sudden we see this guy named Nicodemus show up again. We haven't seen Nicodemus for a long time. So how does he tie it all together? So where was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was in John 3, where we talked earlier about water and spirit, right? That's this water and spirit discussion. Unless you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of water and the spirit. That's in a conversation to Nicodemus, okay? Now, where else is Nicodemus in the Gospel of John? Anybody know? Go to John 19.39. I told you when John says something, you can just look around the Gospel and find out the answers. So also in John 19.39, Jesus shows up again. Okay, John 19.39 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, so he's tying you back to John chapter 3, the gospel, the writer himself is saying, go back and remember chapter 3, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Okay, so what happens is, now in 19.39, Nicodemus shows up, and here's the thing. Do you know who you bury with 75 pounds of spices? King. A king. Good. So now they bury Jesus as a king. And all of a sudden you have this idea that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the prophet. You're thinking back to Isaiah. You're thinking about the Christ. You're thinking about what we read earlier, right? Our, my sure and certain promises to David. Remember? In Isaiah, we read that. My sure and certain promises to David. Well, this is the king that Jesus actually is. He is the king that sits on David's throne and reigns forever. Remember 2 Samuel. 
Second Samuel chapter seven, where, where God Yahweh says to David, I will establish your son's throne forever. Okay, this is a messianic prophecy. So this is one of the giant messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Second Samuel seven is that God will send the son of David to reign forever on the throne of Israel. So now in this mention of Nicodemus in John chapter seven, John is tying all these themes together. He's saying, don't forget water in the spirit, which Jesus is talking about in John 7, also talking about in John 3. Don't forget this identification of who Jesus is. He is the prophet. He is the Christ. He is the king of Israel. As a matter of fact, he's king of kings and lord of lords, right? So all of this is getting tied together in this idea of Nicodemus, and there's more. Nicodemus also says, is it lawful for us to condemn somebody without knowing what they've really done. Well, guess what's going to happen in John 18 and 19? Jesus is going to go to trial, and he's going to be condemned, even though he did nothing wrong. Okay, so all of this is <clears throat> tied together in this mention of Nicodemus. Isn't the Gospel of John fun? Gavin? Yes. I went back to look at the last words of Jesus to Nicodemus when he was talking about him being born again. Mm -hmm. And it, it ends, it's, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Which yep. is why Nicodemus showed up at the end to anoint Jesus. Right. That's exactly right. So, what happens is um, that Jesus ends with this allusion to a snake on a pole and, and says that, that Jesus will be lifted up on the cross in the same way. So you're exactly right. It's all tied to the cross, right? It's all finds its fulfillment there. That's exactly right. Kevin, it appears to me that Nicodemus knew Jesus and therefore, he was able to then bring the all the things that you would do for a king. He he knew to do those things. So therefore, if we have a personal um, relationship with Jesus, we know Jesus too. Uh huh. Right. So now that's that's one of the things in the Gospel of John is you get to kind of say, I'm like Nicodemus sometimes. Sometimes I'm coming to Jesus at night in, the, in, in confusion and saying, I know you're right, but I don't get it. Help me out, right? And, and we kind of walk with these characters through the Gospel of John and say, let me learn with them. Let me journey with them to the cross. Um, this is certainly true in Thomas. Thomas first shows up in chapter 11, and he's totally befuddled by all this. He has no idea what's going on, right? Thomas is... Everybody likes Peter so much in the Gospels, but you really should like Thomas, because Thomas is the guy who's like, you know what, I, I'm with you, Jesus. I have no idea what's going on. I'm just going to kind of stick with you. Uh, we'll see what happens. And, and then at the end of the Gospel, he's the one who confesses my Lord and my God. So in a lot of ways, John invites us to journey with these characters and say, there's because of the Holy Spirit giving you faith to believe these words that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you kind of go along with these people. And maybe Nicodemus is, is totally unsure of what's going on in John chapter 3, but by the end of the gospel, 
he's bearing Jesus as his king, right? And maybe the apostles get it all messed up throughout the gospel, but at the end, they're the ones who have the Holy Spirit. They're the ones who actually are Christ's followers. And so we're invited in the gospel of John to kind of journey with these characters. And not to say that I'm Nicodemus, but to just say, I see a lot of my journey in this, that as I, as I believe in Christ and yet have questions, as I believe the words of God and yet you know, don't always get it all straight, I journey with them. And the point is, is that we're all going to end up at the cross. We're all going to end up with a, a crucified and risen Savior for you. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. What time is it? Wow, we got lots of time left. <laughs> All right. Any questions on what we've gone over since it is 1014-ish? No, but I have a question about Maundy Thursday. Okay. So is that just the church celebrating the fact that we were given the Lord's Supper? Or what is kind of the purpose of that Maundy Thursday celebration? Okay, Maundy Thursday... So, this is a fun part of Lent. Okay? Lent begins with Ash Wednesday. And you guys all know me. We've done this before in class. What's the historical event that happened on Ash Wednesday? Very good. None. There is no historical event that's remembered on Ash Wednesday. It's just the day to start Lent. That's all it is. Okay? It's not like some commemoration of some event. But then Holy Week, which is the last week of Lent leading to Easter, is actually a reliving of Christ's last week on earth. Okay? And we specifically then focus on Palm Sunday. That's today. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem for this last week of his life. And then Maundy Thursday, Maundy not Monday, Maundy Thursday, which was actually Thursday night when he was hanging out with his disciples, or Thursday afternoon, when he was hanging out with his disciples doing all these things. And on Maundy Thursday was the giving of the Lord's Supper. But the Maundy is actually the lap, from the Latin word to command, and that's actually the giving of the command to love one another. And again, obviously, that's going to be found in the Gospel of John because, you know, John's the best book. So Maundy Thursday really is, the, is going back to the historical day on Thursday of Holy Week before his, his death on Friday when he gave us the Lord's Supper and the command to love. And then Good Friday, obviously, is remembering that, that he did die on a Friday. Okay? And then Holy Saturday is the day that he did what? Rested. He rested. Okay? He rested in the tomb. And then Resurrection Day... Resurrection Sunday is the day that he physically, physically rose from the dead. 
not just in our minds, not just in our hearts, not just in a spiritual idea. He physically rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. So this then is Holy Week, because we start with Palm Sunday, that's today, and then Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and, and Easter Sunday is the days we actually commemorate when he actually did those things on those days. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Okay. Any other questions? Kevin, is there a little more humor in uh, when they when they were making fun of uh, Nicodemus about no one coming out of Galilee when Matthew says he shall be called a Nazarene? Which I'm tr I'm trying to find that Old Testament reference. There is, yeah, there is no Old Testament quote. Don't don't look too hard. Okay. Um, that's one of the quotes of Matthew where it goes. It does. Where does it? It actually the the verse you refer to actually says he should be a Nazarite, mm -hmm. not a Nazarene. Okay which is kind of okay. weird because John the Baptist is actually the Nazarite, not Jesus. Um, one day we'll do, we'll do Matthew's Old Testament quotations around the life of Jesus in the first four chapters because it's fun how Moses quotes or how Matthew quotes scripture. It's really quite fun. Um, but yeah, Matthew actually says the fact that he comes from the north is an Old Testament prophecy, right? Out of line, and a lot of Zebulun and Naphtali, each by coming to Nazarene, all this stuff. Matthew actually sees it as a fulfillment of the Old Testament, but here they're saying, that makes us doubt who he is, which is kind of odd. Okay. Um, just one thing I want to say before we go is that today is Palm Sunday, and we do cry out Hosanna, which means save us, please, or save us now. And I want you all, every one of you, wherever you are, to trust this word of God, that God is with you, and he is mighty to save. Nothing we face in this world could overcome that. Separation, disease, fear, economic downturn, nothing can change the fact that you are a child of God. God is with you in this. He's not abandoned you. He's not forsaken you. He is with you in the midst of all this. He knows what you're going through. Pray to him. Reach out to one another like we're doing here over the scriptures. Spend time in the Bible. This is a good time for us to gather in family devotions to really make sure that, that our life is centered around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That this is really, this is really who we are. And as things get stripped away from us, it's always it's it's not a bad thing to to remember that that we have a tendency to set up idols, to set up things in our lives that seem so important. Right, that will actually orient our entire lives around them. We'll spend lots of money to make sure it happens. Well, those are all gone, or a lot of them are gone. Well, guess what? It hasn't changed. It will never change. Is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you? Your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life. the The government can't take that away. COVID nineteen can't take that away. Our fears can't take that away. Um, it is a promise made for you, kept for you, accomplished for you in Christ and you are a child of God. We have, we have, I want you to hear this, we have nothing to fear. Nothing. We are secure in Christ. Whatever happens, we are secure in that promise, and that cannot be taken from you. So I pray for all of y'all that, that this would be a good time in the church to repent and focus again on the Word of God. That's what I'm working on right now, is I'm working on repenting of my idols and focusing on the Word of God, and I join all of you to do that with me. 
Any quick questions before we go? Can you hear me? I don't. I hear two people. Thank you, Kevin. Amen, Kevin, on what you said. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Michelle. Ted. Um, any my other questions? My other thought was, when is the descent into hell part um, in Holy Week? <laughs> the descent into hell. Um, really quick. Um, so he rested in the tomb here. He, ra he was raised from the dead here. So what happens is, remember, you have uh, a Jewish day starts at 6 p.m. or 6.01 p.m. And he physically was appeared to the women of the apostles early in the morning on Sunday, which means he had from Saturday night at 6 until Easter Sunday morning at 6 to be resurrected, but not to appear yet. So the best guess we have, and it's just a guess, is that the descent into hell happened, for us it'd be Saturday night, but, but Saturday's over at that point, so it's very early in the morning resurrection day. So he, the descent into hell is not suffering, it's part of the glorification. So um, what, we, what we want to talk about is the descent into hell is not suffering, the glorification, therefore it probably occurred after after Holy Saturday, okay? Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I am actually getting a, uh, a couple messages here that I wanna say. I do, I do encourage you all, if you haven't had a chance to yet, go to lcms.org. That's our Synod's website, that's the church's website. Um, we have great stuff up there about COVID-19, a lot of devotional thoughts from President Harrison, from our, our vice presidents, from our chaplain, um, a lot of stuff on there to think through all of these issues. So lcms.org, you can go there. Uh, the other thing is your church body has a YouTube channel, and I'm, I'm actually friends with the guy who runs that. So uh, go to lcms.org. LCMS's YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and look up the LCMS within Church Missouri Synod, we have a bunch of videos there also on Vimeo, and a lot of them are going to be very helpful in this time as well. So take advantage of those things if you can. And um, yes, in 720, they say you're a demon possessed out of being crazy. Yes, they, that's exactly what they're saying. They are saying that he's out of his mind crazy, and they're thinking it's from a, a devil because what he's saying doesn't seem to be true. Good question. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll go. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we cry out today with the crowds in Jerusalem, Hosanna. Son of David, save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we rejoice that today we are reminded once again in your holy word that we are your children, that our sins are forgiven and eternal life is given to us freely through our Savior, Jesus. Give us your Holy Spirit, that in all these things may be oriented toward Jesus, setting our eyes on him, the one who is our Savior now and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.